Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer episode number 42 for April 27th, 2016. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. This week on Polygamer... I just went to a pre-release yesterday, actually, and had no comments at all. I didn't hear any conversations that weren't appropriate. I felt like I was respected by every single person I played, and that would not have been true five, six years ago. That's Tifa Robles, founder of the Lady Planeswalker Society, a Magic the Gathering community intended as an introduction to the game for women and a safe space for veteran players to play. I'll be speaking with Tifa about why she founded the group, how it's evolved in the last five years, what the group is doing to change the tenor of the conversation and to address harassment, and on a personal note, the challenges she and her husband have had starting a family. If you've never played Magic the Gathering before, then you're in good company, because neither have I. But the nature and the mechanics of the game were a large focus of Tifa's conversation with my friend Aline Sims on the podcast Less Than or Equal, number 17, which you can find at ltoe.net slash 17. There will be a link in the show notes. The show notes for this episode, of course, can be found at plyg.me slash 42. Not quite as intuitive as Aline's links, but I do what I can. Some other background before we get started. If you've been listening to this show since the beginning, then you know that it was created in response to a panel I moderated at PAX East 2014, all about feminism in gaming. The original lineup for that panel was Susan Arndt, who has also been on this podcast, Brianna Wu of Giant Space Cat, and Dwayne DeFore, as well as one other person who unfortunately had to back out at the last minute due to a travel conflict. I wasn't sure how to find a representative of a diverse or marginalized community at the last minute. So I went on Kickstarter, where I'd previously backed GamerX, and sent them an email saying, do you have a representative at PAX East, or do you know anybody who would be appropriate? Tony from GamerX put me in touch with Benjamin Williams, who has now also been on this show. He founded the Diversity Lounge at PAX. He was going to be at PAX East, but busy running the Diversity Lounge, so he put me in touch with Tifa Robles, who was going to be at her very first PAX East, and she agreed to be on my panel. So Tifa was part of the panel that founded Polygamer, basically. But more than that, I don't think this podcast would exist if it weren't for her specifically. After the show, I was trying to figure out how to continue this conversation, and I wondered if it was appropriate for a straight, white, cisgendered male to have a podcast about equality and diversity in gaming. It seemed a little hypocritical to me. But I put the idea out to some of my former panelists, and I think Tifa might have been the only one who actually wrote back. And she said, Ken... Your demographic is the one that we need supporting these causes. We need more allies. And that was it. It's not like I ran every idea by her, or she helped me launch the website, or she funded the podcast, or anything like that. It was just that one email. It was just the right words, at just the right time, when I needed it. And that was what cinched it for me. I launched Polygamer. And two years later, I finally have Tifa on the show. Now, prior to this episode being recorded on April 3rd, we have not seen or even spoken to each other in real time since that panel two years ago. We have emailed, and we've Facebooked, and we've tweeted, and we've LinkedIn, but this was the first time we've actually chatted since then, and it was great to catch up with her because I do consider her a friend. And I am looking forward to seeing her when I happen to be vacationing in Seattle this summer. Tifa is a former employee of Wizards of the Coast, which is actually a position she left in order to focus on the Lady Planeswalker Society. She is now a she is now a games producer in the Xbox division of Microsoft. 
If you want to find out more about the Lady Planeswalker Society, you can find them at ladyplaneswalkers.weebly.com, and you can follow Tifa herself at Tifa Robles on Twitter. That's T-I-F-A, just like the character from Final Fantasy VII, R-O-B-L-E-S, Tifa Robles. And, of course, you can find more episodes of Polygamer at polygamer.net, where you can also leave voicemail or send an email if you have any feedback you want to share with the show. Polygamer is coming up on almost two years old now, which is amazing, and there are still so many more people I want to interview and so many more events I want to go to. As this episode airs, I'm just getting out of PAX East 2016, where I moderate a panel on games journalism, again with Susan Arndt and also Holly Green, formerly of Game Ranks, and the cookbook Fry Score, who is a former guest of Polygamer, Alexa Ray Correa, whose audio from a PAX Prime panel has been used as an episode of this podcast, with her permission, and Sammy Sarkar from Polygon, who wrote the Polygon article covering the PAX East 2014 panel on feminism that launched this podcast. So, wow, full circle. This coming weekend, I'm going to my very first Indicade East in New York City, where I'm going to be scoping out some potential guests for future episodes of my other podcast, Indecider, which you can find at indecider.net. And I think that's all the big game events I'm going to this calendar year. I'll, of course, be going to Kansas Fest in July, but that's for old Apple II computers, not quite relevant to this podcast. It's just the other massive thing I dedicate most of my life to, with blogs, podcasts, and magazines. But anyway, you're here for Polygamer. You're here to hear from Tifa Robles. So as my dad, another former guest of this show, would say, let's get the show on the road. Today, I'm very excited to be chatting with a friend of mine without whom this podcast would probably not exist. That is Tifa Robles, organizer and founder of the Lady Planeswalker Society. Hi, Tifa. Hi. Thank you so much, Ken, for having me on here. I'm so excited. Me too. We have not actually chatted in real time in two years, not since you and I were on a PAX East 2014 panel about feminism in the games industry. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That was a great panel. I... That was the first time I got to meet Brianna Wu, so that was awesome. Now we're good friends. Yeah, uh, there were so many amazing people on that panel that I was very fortunate to be on stage with. There was you, Brianna Wu, Susan Arndt, and Dwayne DeFore. Both Susan and Dwayne have been on this podcast, and now it's your turn. Yeah. Exciting. So you were on that panel primarily representing the Lady Planeswalker Society, which you founded five years ago. Is that correct? That is correct. Awesome. And the Lady Planeswalker Society, as I understand it, well, I'm sure you can put it in even better words. So tell us what the LPS is. So we, uh, like you said, we started five years ago. Uh, When I started the group, it was um, aimed at creating a welcoming, friendly environment for women to get into Magic the Gathering. Over time, it's really evolved into all genders, uh, LGBTQ, really getting everybody into magic who maybe hasn't had the opportunity or even if they haven't had good experiences and want a new place to play, uh, we provide just a different outlet for that. So it reminds me a little bit of the Sugar Gamers out in Chicago, which is a safe space for women who are interested in video games. Are you familiar with that group? Um, A little bit, yeah. I haven't had the opportunity to chat with them or meet any of them, but I have heard of the group. So both organizations are, as I mentioned, intended for uh, women who are interested in these pastimes, but they're not exclusive to women. You, as you mentioned, allow all genders. Why was that decision made? Because there are groups out there, especially I just interviewed the Code Liberation Foundation, and they are an educational program to encourage women to get into coding and development. And they feel that 
having men in that space creates a pressure on the woman to perform, whether that pressure is external from the guys or just on the women who feel that they need to live up to perceived expectations. Does that pressure not exist in the Lady Planeswalker Society? Uh, I've never had anybody tell me that they felt that pressure. Um, and I don't think that it exists. Uh, when we started, I did, it was almost like a filtering system for the men who played in the group. Um, and I would, I'd have the same conversation with anybody who would come into the group, but it would basically, I would sit and chat with them about what the group's goals were. Uh, and I would just make sure that they were supportive and on board with contributing to that environment. Uh, and it, it weeded out, I think, men or people who would not have been really helpful for that environment that I wanted. Um, like, there were quite a few guys who would come and I would chat with them and then they'd be like, okay, maybe this isn't the group for me, which was good because at least they realized they wouldn't be contributing. As far as I know, the men who are actively involved with the group who women might feel are, like, paying attention or just involved at all uh, are super supportive and I make sure that that's always the case. When you were doing that vetting process, what could you have said to a guy to make them think maybe this isn't for me? Uh, it was really as simple as just the mission statement. Like I said to you at the beginning of the podcast, just telling them that, you know, this is a space for women to get into the game. And like, if that was something that like sort of turned them off, or like if they would feel uncomfortable being competitive in that environment. That's another thing is we kind of, we call ourselves a casual gaming group, uh, which we're not at all against competition, but it's really, if all you're doing in the game is competitive, then we're probably not the place because we really want to introduce beginner players to the game. So a lot of people would just hear that and realize that, oh, I should really just go play at the normal tournaments that exist instead of this one. So it wasn't that these guys were against playing with women. They just wanted to be a little bit more competitive. Yeah, I think so. Uh, or, you know, there was one time where it was probably a group of like five or six guys uh, that came together. And I think that they realized, oh, we'd kind of be, you know, bringing in like our own um, sort of like conversations and that kind of stuff that wouldn't be involved like it wouldn't be engaged with the group in the way that we try to be uh and you know it's it's hard to say like maybe if they came and played it would be fine uh but just hearing what the group was about they didn't think it was a good fit it sounds like they were more interested in playing with each other and being a little clicky yeah well and that's one of the things is we run so we run our turn our tournaments under like the same way that other magic tournaments are ran so there's a buy-in and prizes involved so sometimes people come to the events being like, oh, this is just a standard tournament that I can get some packs from. But then they get there and realize, oh, this is actually totally different than that. Because it's a, a group of people who engage in conversation and focus on, like I said, beginner players. And it's very open to, to like chatting about strategy in a more supportive way. The normal where it's like if somebody has a question in the middle of a game, they're allowed to ask it and have like a real conversation about uh, what a card might do or something. Where in a normal, I, I shouldn't use the word normal, but it's like the the tournaments that exist before our group did. 
it was sort of you weren't really supposed to ask a question in the middle of a game because you could affect the outcome. Well, we don't worry about that at all. Like we just want people to have fun. We want people to feel like they're getting better at the game and not being challenged in an intimidating way, but instead just becoming more familiar with the game in a very welcoming, friendly manner. I see. When I was first listening, you said you're not competitive, but you have tournaments. I was trying to figure out how those two things could coexist, but basically you're just eliminating all the pressure that comes with trying to win and focusing more on the process of having fun. Yes. And the reason that I do set it up in a tournament format is because, so our primary goal is to get people into magic. But the secondary goal, which is also very important to me, is to provide a stepping stone into tournament play. So if somebody is a new magic player and they want to get better at the game and learn what a tournament is like and, you know, interacting with people they don't know playing the game, they can start at our group. And then if they decide they're ready to move to Friday Night Magic, which is sort of the next competitive level or pre-releases or whatever level of play they want to try that they'll have the skills they need to go try that without having to be worried about all of that in addition to their gender or whatever differences they might have why is it so important to you that the lady planeswalker society serve as almost a breeding ground for competitive gamers i think it is very important that the magic the gathering scene has more women or more diversity honestly it feels very much, well, and I think it's gotten better over the years, but when I started playing, it felt very much like a male-dominated, just boys club uh, that it didn't feel like, I never felt like I was welcomed. Uh, I always felt like my differences were focused on, there were a lot of kind of inappropriate comments all the time that I felt like it was like I had to be okay with them. And I think if you just have more balance in the amount of, uh, women and genders and race and everything else that some of those attitudes would sort of have to go away in these public spaces. Sorry, the issues are going to be faced more often and there's going to be more voices to be heard. But the people who are making those comments that you felt the need to tolerate aren't necessarily the people who are coming to the Lady Planeswalker Society and learning that that behavior is not acceptable and learning better behaviors. How do you... I mean, you, you can introduce more people who are encouraging of equality and diversity into the mainstream, but does that really offset the bullshit that they have to put up with? Well, if you get a big enough group, then they're going to fight it. (laughs) So you're building an army. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've honestly, over the last five or six years that I've been, so I've been playing magic for six years and I've noticed a huge difference in the Seattle scene. uh, And I mean, it started with very subtle changes, and it's hard to pinpoint exactly why that's happening, but I do know that the percent of women playing is a lot higher than it was when I started six years ago, and I just went to a pre-release yesterday, actually, and had no comments at all. I didn't hear any conversations that weren't appropriate. I felt like I was respected by every single person I played, and that would not have been true five, six years ago. So there's already a change happening. And I'm not I'm not saying that that's oh only because of Lady Planeswalkers. Like Wizards has been trying to do better as well. Uh, but there there really is a shift happening right now. And I do think it's because people are starting to talk about the problems more. People are starting to 
say, you know what, like this game is worth it for me. I I do see the change already happening. That's really encouraging to hear because the last two years, it sounds, it feels like all we've heard about are the issues of harassment that have been facing members of this industry and this community. And it, it almost feels like it's getting worse before it gets better. This doesn't offset the harassment that is very real that some people are experiencing, but it sounds like there are areas of gaming where things are getting better. I feel like we're in a time of like revolution. Like this is like, this is the time things are going to change. I think one of the reasons we are seeing so much of the harassment is because the change is happening and people are reacting to it. And I told, it absolutely doesn't offset that harassment, but my hope is that the groups that are doing the harassing are slowly either they start to change their views and realize where they're wrong or they find their own communities or are pushed out entirely. Um, I don't want anybody to be excluded from gaming, but if you're going to treat people like that, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't be there. <laughs> right. I mean, some people, I've heard this argument so many times that organizations like the Lady Planeswalker Society are being discriminatory of the culture and community that naturally evolved in magic or in gaming. Yeah, I get that all the time. Yep. How do you respond to that? I respond that it's not fair to say that only this type of person can play a game. And another thing about about magic tournaments, it's it's very different than things that happen online because you are face to face with people in a public space. Any person should be allowed to go into a game store and not have to worry about how they're treated. And like I feel very strongly about that and one of the things that i do to combat what they them calling me discriminatory is me saying that we allow everyone to play with us everyone has the choice to play with us if they want if they behave in an inappropriate way there might be consequences but there's been so few instances of somebody getting banned from our tournaments or anything like that that there's really no way anyone has any backup on saying that i'm discriminatory discriminating against anybody because I let so many different types of people play with us. Right. If there's anything you're discriminating against, it's discrimination. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people say that social justice warriors are just intolerant of different things, but you can't ask us to be tolerant of intolerance. You can't ask us to tolerate hate. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what, what we're all about is you know, no hate. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great slogan right there. Go for it. <laughs> when a graduate or a member of the Lady Planeswalker Society community goes into one of these competitive spaces, and despite all these efforts, they do encounter remarks or behavior that is inappropriate, how do you advise them to handle those situations? Um, I think the first, the first thing is just to be really supportive. Uh, a lot of times when somebody encounters something like that, they just want to know they're not alone um, and sort of like sharing sharing experiences that have happened and then also you know maybe telling them places to play where people don't act like that um, is one of the biggest things that I do like if I if I know a store that is very welcoming and that I haven't received behavior like that um, I definitely recommend maybe they try there instead and another thing that magic provides is uh, they have judges at every tournament, you 
there's like a, a judge that you can call for rules questions or unsportsmanlike behavior. And the judge community has made a huge effort in the last couple of years to ensure that there is no harassment, that there is no sexism. They're very, very serious about it. And I know some high, high level head judges in the area that also take it very seriously. Uh, so I always recommend that if something like that happens to call a judge and it's possible that the particular judge at the store you're playing at won't take it seriously, but there are like next steps you can do if you think that it's a, if you think it's a big enough problem that needs to be addressed, then there is that. We're really lucky that Seattle has so many different game stores that that's always an option is to go somewhere else. But for other for other places in the nation and in the world who might not have those options, it does get a little tricky sometimes because if if someone goes into that space and just doesn't have the support, it's really unfortunate. Like there's not really a lot you can say because you can't be there to make sure people aren't being jerks. And unless you have the support from either the store owner or a judge or something like that, sadly there might not be a real option. And I definitely try not to tell people to just have a thicker skin. I try not to tell people like, Oh, confront them. Cause what if they don't want to, what if they don't have that kind of personality that is okay doing that? So it, it is tricky situation. Right. Because when you tell someone who is experiencing harassment to not put themselves in the space where they encounter harassment, that's very similar to a judge saying, if you gain threats on Twitter, just don't use Twitter or don't go on the internet. Right. And that sucks. <laughs> right. It's not realistic and it doesn't put the blame on the right person. Yeah. I've, I've definitely escalated incidents that have happened to wizards or like I said, head judges that I know. Uh, and I know that they do their best to take care of those things, especially when it's a store owner or a judge, like there are things Wizards of the Coast can actually do to affect those people. And Wizards is definitely taking harassment more seriously these days. Is that to say that they didn't before? Um, so I can't actually speak for before five, six years ago because I wasn't involved. Um, but I know when I started working there and when I was working there, they were making active efforts that I don't think existed before. And I don't think it was that they ever didn't care. I think it was more of they didn't have to face it as much. And now it's become a bigger thing. And they want to make sure that they're encouraging their communities to not be like that. And they've written all kinds of documentation about how to deal with harassment. And they're really they're making a lot of strides about diversity and even writing articles about it and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's not that they ever were bad at it. It's just that they are actively getting better every year. Now, this might be an odd question, but I previously interviewed Lillian Chen, who goes by the name Milk Tea. Are you familiar with her? I'm not, actually. So she doesn't play Magic. She's a competitive Super Smash Brothers player. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and the... A uh, competitive uh, fighting game scene was documented to a degree in the film GTFO. If you haven't seen that, I definitely recommend it. Uh, I have heard of it, and I do really, really want to see it. My husband is very involved with the fighting game community. I mean, I actually, before I played Magic, I almost became a tournament player for Soul Calibur. Really? But yeah, but my boyfriend at the time actually advised me against it because of the sexism in the community. And it's really funny because, you know, then I immediately went to another 
<laughs> another male-dominated community and decided that I was going to do something about the sexism. Uh, and I, I always sometimes wonder, like, I wonder if I could have done that for the fighting game community. Uh, because I know that it is also pretty toxic. Yeah, uh, Lillian talked a little bit about that in the podcast. Maddie Myers has blogged about it. It was in the film GTFO, and it's it's just heart-wrenching what these women have had to put up with in this scene. Uh, but the fighting game community, or at least the frenetic level of activity that occurs in those games where you're constantly moving and constantly assessing your opponent and reacting to action on the screen, I can almost understand, not excuse, but understand why trash talking occurs at that level and why it can become toxic. But in Magic the Gathering, I mean, it seems to me to be a game more akin to chess than Mortal Kombat, where you're being very thoughtful and deliberate about your actions, and thus I would hope you're also being more deliberate with your word choice and how you interact with your opponent. So what does harassment in the Magic scene even look like? Uh, A lot of it isn't even involved with gameplay specifically. Some of it is. Uh, but so as a woman, some common things I've heard many times over the years are things like, oh, you're really pretty for a magic player or, oh, are you here with your boyfriend? Uh, <laughs> assumptions that I only am playing because of whatever man I'm with or that I only learned for some, you know, some man that I'm with. Uh, there have been a lot. The comment of like, oh, you play good for a girl is often a thing or oh you just lost to a girl things like that uh, and there's there's also a lot of just really subtle stuff like I I've been in events where I'll be building a deck and some guy will try to like give me advice in a really condescending way and it's really hard to like point at it and be like oh what you're doing is sexist because he could easily be like what do you mean I'm just trying to help but it's I pay really close attention to how my guy friends and my husband are treated versus how me and any of my girlfriends who might be there are treated. And it's, it's different. Like they're treated far less seriously. If you're a woman, like people just don't, they just assume that you're not there to be serious about the game. And it's really discouraging. Uh, For me, it was actually, it sort of pushed me to want to be good at the game. Like I wanted to prove that women could be good at this game. But for other people, it's like, I just, they just don't want to deal with it. And it's not worth it to get good at the game to be treated like that. And yeah, like, that's, that's like the majority of the stuff. Like, when you're playing, a, sometimes, another thing, if somebody, someone might use a word to describe a card, or, I, I really hate to say this word, but someone will use the term rape to describe, like, when they, destroy, like, destroyed their opponent. Um, with a lot of creatures or something like they'll use that as in like, Oh, I really like, I really screwed over. Right. Like, uh, so it's like terminology like that is just spoken without being thought about. And it's, it's a different kind of trash talk that you hear in the fighting game community, but it's still terminology that's not being well thought out before it's being said. Yeah. I was hoping that word wouldn't come up in the magic community it sounded when you were talking about saying oh you play well for a girl i was like that's really almost in a way passive aggressive as opposed to the fighting community where the language can be almost sexually violent yeah but it sounds like there is unfortunately some common vocabulary between the two right well and it's never terms like that are never used directly against a player right it's always something about the cards or the gameplay or something happening so it, it's 
different, but still, it's still as bad. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and some people have like nudie play mats and deck sleeves and stuff like that. And I know that that can also be really unwelcoming for women, but that's another thing. I know a lot of stores who ban those things now. And five years ago, I didn't know of any. Wow. That's definitely an improvement then. Yeah. So the Lady Planeswalker Society has been around for about five years now. How has it grown or evolved or changed in that time? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. We already talked a little bit about how it started very focused on women and now it's much broader in what we try to accomplish with diversity. I would say that men in LGBTQ groups have been even more involved uh, than when we started. Just like when I when I go to conventions, we have a lot of men that come and help teach. Uh, we have male judges that are very supportive of everything that we do. Uh, and that's it's awesome to have. Like I feel like the community has accepted us more and more throughout the years. Like when I started, it felt like the group wasn't taken very seriously, but it wasn't very long before there were pro players talking about the group and now like Wizards of the Coast like uses us for like promotional stuff and we were the official learn to play there. So that's one of the ways we've sort of been able to grow more is by having all of this support. Uh, and one of the biggest things that's happened is we have 70 chapters worldwide. 70? Seven zero? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which is just crazy. I get maybe three emails a week of people interested in starting chapters. And not all of those chapters start. And now that number is 70, not all of those chapters are active all the time. But that's how many chapters have started. And that's how many groups there are that have Lady Planeswalkers as their name that are talking about, you know, these issues and having events for people to come learn the game. Uh, and it's it's literally all over the world. And every every month that number goes up more and more. So what does it take to start a Lady Planeswalker Society chapter? So I do want to recommend if somebody listening does want to start a chapter, I do talk about this a lot on our website. But I can just give a brief overview. Uh, and y- people can always feel free to email me about this stuff too. Uh, but it the first thing that it takes is just dedication. You have to f- be somebody or find somebody who is willing to really dedicate themselves to starting the group. Because it's not going to pick up off the ground unless somebody is really willing to commit to it. The next thing is... I highly recommend finding a store in your area that is supportive of hosting Lady Planeswalkers events uh, because a store can just will have all the tools and resources to help you do that already. But if there isn't a, maybe you're starting a group because there isn't a store that has a welcoming environment, then you can go to like a library or a coffee house and or somewhere where you can talk to somebody about having an organized event um, on a regular basis. From there, it's just generating interest. The internet makes generating interest a lot easier these days. If you start a Facebook group or Twitter um, or even on uh, meetup.com, you can find people in your area. And I do recommend if you know people in the magic community, talking to them, letting them know that you know if they have kids or significant others who don't play magic but want to, that you know, this is a place for them to come learn the game. Uh, And then it's just organizing the events. And that's really, it's not, it's not actually that hard. The the main thing you need is just the time 
to do it. Oh, that's all you need. Just, you know, time, resources, <laughs> community, networking, connections. That's all. <laughs> well, so much of that stuff is already there. You just have to you just have to go find it. But so many so many of these chapters like uh I've had women who like didn't even play the game and they've been able to get a chapter of 30 people in the matter of a month just by posting, "Hey, I'm going to do this thing." And it's really it's really it's really surprising how quickly these things pick up. Like I I'm surprised that in 5 years we have 70 chapters, but that just goes to show like it really you could you could do one event a month and just dedicate one night to it and you could still make a huge difference and get people that you just wouldn't even expect to see show up. If I want to start a magic group in my community, what's the benefit to starting a Lady Planeswalker Society as opposed to just going on my own? Well, if you were going to start a magic group that didn't have some focus, so like Lady Planeswalkers is very focused on diversity, if you didn't have any kind of focus, then there's probably already a store in your area that's going to be feeding that community. So you honestly might get less interest if you were just to start like, oh, we're just going to play magic. People will be like, oh, I already do that at Friday night every week. Where if you have something like, hey, let's like find women who want to play magic or let's just create a new space where we can be more casual when we play or something like that. Lady Planeswalkers really lends itself well to just an alternative space because it really is completely different than any other tournament you're going to find. Yeah, for example, if I want to start a hamburger joint, which I would never do because I'm a vegetarian, there is some benefit to being a McDonald's franchise because brand recognition, people immediately know what to expect when they get there. There would probably be some of that with the Lady Planeswalker Society as well, where that name, the LPS, immediately tells people this is a safe space. That's true. Yeah, our at this point, our name is really well known. It's been written about and talked about on most of the major magic sites, so people have definitely heard of us. And what was it that got you into magic in the first place? I was actually working at a board game store at the time, uh, and one of my shifts like coincided with uh, magic events that were happening. And everyone, it, I remember working. It was working a pre-release when I first remember feeling like man, this looks so awesome. Like, all these people are so excited for this game. Everyone was, like, really, like, friendly with each other. And, and it was all guys. But I was like, man, this community just looks awesome. Like, they all have this thing in common that they share. Uh, and it sort of reminded me of, like, conventions, only, you know, playing a specific game. The energy in the store just, like, really got me excited and I had asked my boss, I was like, hey, can I start working more magic events? Like, I had a lot of fun. And he was like, well, how about we teach you how to play? And he sat me down and taught me. And I sort of, like, immediately fell in love with the game. Uh, and it was only, like, three weeks before I tried playing in a tournament. And then I learned very quickly, oh, you have to be, like, you have to practice this game a lot to actually do well. <laughs> like I said, uh, I started to experience like the sexism right away, and that sort of pushed me to be like, I want to prove to these guys that women can be good at this game. And that really motivated me to just keep playing. And I, I mean, I loved the game, or I probably wouldn't have kept going. But yeah, that was that was how it all started. 
So I learned a lot about Magic the Gathering from listening to you speak to Aline Sims on the Less Than or Equal podcast, episode number 17, back in December of 2014. And the reason I learned so much, partly, is not just because you are an expert at this subject matter, but also because I had a lot to learn. I've never actually played Magic. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting how many... uh how many gamers haven't played Magic when it's such a big game? Well, when it came out back in the mid-90s, I decided to get into a collectible card game by one of its competitors instead. Uh, a game from the company TSR called Spellfire. Are you familiar with it? I have not even heard of that. What? Wow. You've never heard <laughs> yeah. of Spellfire? No. <laughs> so, like I said, Spellfire was made by a company called TSR. This was their attempt at combating the threat from this new group called Wizards of the Coast. Yep. <laughs> and TSR, their flagship product up until then, had been this other little-known game called Dungeons & Dragons. Yep. And I know about TSR because working at Wizards, like you sort of learn all that stuff, but I just hadn't heard of their card game. <laughs> Yeah, they were trying to capitalize on their extensive library of characters and icons and art. So when you were playing Spellfire cards, they were all these characters and places that you've read about in their novels or their campaigns or in their box sets. It was a lot of real brand recognition. Yeah. But unfortunately, Spellfire didn't catch on like Magic did. TSR declared bankruptcy, got bought by Wizards of the Coast, and now we have Dungeons & Dragons for them too. Yep. <laughs> I think it was may have been for the best, at least for me, that Spellfire was discontinued because that's been one of the things that has kept me from even trying magic, which is if I want to play, you know, Settlers of Catan or whatever, I spend forty to sixty bucks on a box set and I have everything I need. Whereas Magic the Gathering, it just seems like a money pit where I never would stop spending and I always have more cards to buy. That's one thing in particular that stood out to me on your episode of Lesson or Equal was the release frequency for cards. They're like coming out every month. Is that correct? Uh, it's four. So the main sets is four times a year. It's about every three months. Uh, but they do have like secondary SKUs maybe twice a year. So I mean, that's six times a year that they're adding new cards into the mix. Okay, so I exaggerate a little, but still, I feel like I would always be buying new cards. And maybe that's kind of like, well, I have a PlayStation. I always buy new games for that. I, I consider it the same. Like, I consider my whatever money I spend on Magic my, like, entertainment cost for the month, right? Like, instead of going to a movie, we might go play Magic instead. And, and you always feel like that keeps the game fresh and alive for you? It's almost like DLC? absolutely yeah if the game was always the same i think people would lose interest pretty quickly where this way you always have new mechanics you always have new decks to build or new new things to learn uh, and there's so many different ways to play too like i think that's something people who don't play magic don't really understand is there's like so many different formats and avenues that you can play the game that you can find one that might be more cost-effective for you specifically. If you want to be one of the best players out there, especially on the competitive tournament scene, you have to be willing to spend a lot of money to get the best cards. You kind of have to be willing to dedicate your life to it if you want to be at that level. Like, the competitive level, I know people who do it full-time um, because it is very, like, you have to be very, very dedicated and good at the game. Um, and, I mean, once you get to a certain point, you actually make money doing it. But, it, I mean, that takes years of putting a lot of money and time into it first. So, yeah, you are, you are right that, like, the more competitive you want to be, the more expensive it's probably going to be. But at a certain point, another thing that happens is if you're part of the, like, semi-pro scene, 
you're going to know people that have the cards. So so if there's a deck you want to play, you're going to know who you can go to to borrow those cards from. Uh, And that's definitely something that I know the competitive scene does a lot. Really? If I am trying to compete, there are actually people, there are other competitors out there who will help me compete? Yeah. I mean, you make friends with them, right? Like, uh, if if you're playing Magic at that level and it's that big of your life, you're going to end up, like, your friend group is going to end up being Magic players for the most part. And a lot of people will trade cards or sort of share collections in a way where they can just play together. And they also, um, a lot of people, they practice together and go into these big events, you know, very supportive of each other. That's interesting. I just would have thought that they'd be your friends off the playing field and your enemies on. But it sounds like they'll help you in any capacity. Oh, yeah. I like when... Because I'm really close like with that community. And when I started playing, I was good friends with some people who were semi-pro and pro. And there is very amazing camaraderie in those groups. There's just not a lot of women. Uh, and, you know, there's been more over the years. But when I started, I didn't know any com- like competitive women who played. But the guys, I mean, they're very supportive of each other and you know, it, I, I kind of wanted that. Like, that was another reason that Lady Planeswalkers has been great is like now I have that with, you know, my own friends. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I would like to be a part of that community. <laughs> I just looked up and there is a Lady Planeswalker Society chapter here in Boston. Their Facebook group isn't very active. I don't know if that bodes well or not, but maybe I'll see if I can pop in next time they have an event and just watch somebody play Magic, which I've never even done that before either. The Boston chapter is one of our oldest chapters, and it seems like it goes off and on. Like, it'll not be active for a few months, and then somebody will pop on there or contact me and want to be more involved. And then they'll be super active for a few months, and that one sort of ebbs and flows, I think. As does almost any volunteer-run organization. Exactly. Yep, that is part of the... You know, part of how this works. Yeah. So I really love how you've used the Lady Planeswalker Society to grow the Magic the Gathering community. And I understand that you're taking that mission very personally by introducing a little player of your own in the coming year. Yes. Yeah. I am actually 19 weeks pregnant now. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, my husband and I, it was maybe our third date that he asked me if I wanted kids someday. And I was like, I can't imagine my life without kids someday uh and he was like all right (laughs) so i mean we we've known that this was going to be in our future for our whole relationship and when we got married we were like all right let's let's enjoy married life for a while and wait like two years and we got a year into being married and started getting a little antsy and we're like all right well let's just wait like a few more months and we got to the point where it was like we were done waiting and yeah here we are so (laughs) Yeah. You make it sound so easy, but I, I know it hasn't been. It has not been, no. I understand that you had some challenges last year. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I wish, going into it, I wish I'd known that it can take a lot longer than one would expect. Uh, we we actually did like a uh, pre-pregnancy health regimen before we started trying uh, to get like our bodies in like tip-top shape. And because we did that, I think we sort of, went in with this ignorant sense that we'd just get pregnant right away, um, which didn't happen. And it was actually really stressful and um, upsetting that, you know, month after month, it was like, okay, well, we're not, we're not pregnant yet. Like, did we do something wrong? Like, you know, it was, 
it was more stressful than something like that should be. Uh, so I really, any, any person I hear who's like thinking about having kids, I tell them like, start trying before you're like, oh, I'm, I'm ready for the baby right now. Cause it's probably, it takes most people longer than they assume it's going to take. Um, and then, yeah, the challenges that you're talking about, we actually, uh, when we first got pregnant, we ended up having a miscarriage and that's another thing I wish I'd known, uh, how common miscarriages are. Uh, they say it's one in every four pregnancies and that's that many. Yeah. And that's only miscarriages that you can medically diagnose as a miscarriage. Uh, a lot of miscarriages happen before the positive pregnancy test even happens. So it's it's hard to get an actual number of how common they are. Uh, but yeah, one in four. And if you think about it, that, that, that doesn't mean one in four women, because if women have multiple pregnancies or have multiple kids, you know, that means that each time it's more likely to tie into that statistic. Um, but yeah, one in four pregnancies is really, that's a lot more than you'd think it is, because people don't talk about it. And do they not talk about it because of the same reason where you were having difficult getting pregnant, where you just felt like, did we do something wrong? Are they ashamed to admit it? I think there's a lot of things in play that make our society not talk about it. Uh, and I think it's really, really unfortunate and something that needs to change. I actually think a big part of it is just the view of women's bodies and how we're expected to be perfect. Um, that... You know, and women's health isn't really talked to, when women's health is talked about, it's very controversial. So this is just a topic that sort of gets hidden. People don't want to talk about it because, yeah, like, like they don't want to admit that something might be wrong. But really, it's, there's nothing wrong with you when you have a miscarriage. It's just something that happens. It's a, it's a chromosome abnormality that no one has any control over. And it can happen to literally anybody. Uh, but yeah, people, it, this happens, and because it's not talked about, like, I know when it happened to us, we didn't really tell a lot of people because we didn't know how to talk about it, because we hadn't heard other people talk about it much. Um, and when we had, it been, you know, very close family, so it was like, well, how do you bring up, oh, hey, this thing happened? And I mean, it was a long process for us. We actually miscarried twins, and it was like four weeks of not even knowing what was going on all sorts of tests on top of that like the hormone the hormonal changes that I was going through it was a very hard emotional time and we kind of just dropped off the face of the earth which was very unusual for us um and when friends would reach out like a lot of times we would tell them but like it was really you could even tell from their responses that they didn't know how to talk about it and I just if it's that common of a thing I feel like we need to get to a point where people know how to handle it and it's like we shouldn't not talk about it just because it's sad because we can talk about if there's a death in the family or if someone has cancer, or all these horrible things. This is just, it should be on that list of, hey, this is how you deal with it. This is how you can help somebody who's going through this. And I just don't feel like those, those resources exist. So what made you decide to more or less go public with this when so few other people have? That's exactly why. Because people don't talk about it and I... If I can even make the difference for one friend who's going to go through this so that they know they can talk to me, then it's worth it. Uh, and if I can make the difference and make it so that, you know, five other people talk about it and then each of them has a friend with like, it just, it can be exponentially help helpful 
uh, and the more people that talk about it, maybe the less taboo the subject will be. So it's, I just felt like it was all benefit. And to be completely honest, part of it helped me get past what happened. Like being able to talk about it felt like I wasn't carrying around this deep, dark, sad secret all the time. But at the same time, it must be almost a form of torture to have to talk about it when you just would rather move on. Honestly, I don't, I don't think so. Like it's something, it's something that happened in, in our life. It's something that grew us closer together as a couple. Uh, it, I, I mean, yeah, it's horrible that we had to go through that. But at the same time, we experienced growth as people and being able to talk about it just helps me heal better because it's not like I don't think about it. It's not like I'm going to forget. So just being able to bring it up when something comes up, it feels better than just having to hold it inside. I'm really sorry that you and Mike had to go through that. That is, I'm, I'm glad that you have turned it into a force for good in this world, which is, seems to be something you're very good at doing. But it's not an opportunity I would have ever wished upon. Thank you, Ken. Thanks. And fortunately, that didn't stop you from trying again because we need more people like you and Mike in the world. And I'm glad that you're working on creating one. <laughs> Aw, thanks. Yeah, we uh, we got pretty lucky. It was our first try after the miscarriage, actually. Like, we got the go-ahead from the doctors, and here we are. And everything couldn't be going better. Like, every ultrasound, they're like, everything's perfect. Like, everything's just going as well as it possibly could be. And that's sort of, that's another reason that, like, I'm really glad I talked about the miscarriage because then people who go through a miscarriage, hopefully they'll have hope at the end of it, knowing that, oh, this can happen and then you can still go on to have a family. Like, it's not, it's not going to end all those hopes and dreams that you had. And, like, yeah, it's going to for that particular child which is you know really tragic but you can still have a family someday do you know jonathan Mann, the song a day man no i don't uh for the last like five years he's been writing and performing an original song every day he has the oh, guinness man. book of records for the most consecutive original songs recorded whoa yeah it's ridiculous uh, and he apparently decided that wasn't enough because he also has a podcast that he does with his wife uh, but they recently took like a six-month hiatus on that podcast. And when they came back, they explained that they had had a miscarriage. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a very off-topic topic for them. And uh, it was really powerful that they were able to share this for a half an hour, the two of them together. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, there will be a link to the show in the show notes, anybody who wants to listen to that. I will definitely check that out. Thanks, Ken. Sure. Now, I remember you mentioning this way back when we were on our panel together two years ago, which was one of the concerns you're anticipating for your child is that it'll be a biracial child. Is that correct? It will, yeah. My husband is 100% Mexican and I'm white. Um, so I'm honestly, I'm super excited for that. But, you know, as as somebody who grew up with white privilege, it's uh, it's going to be problems that I haven't personally faced if they do run into racism at all are if i may ask are your family supportive very very supportive yes my family has always been supportive of my decisions and they're very liberal uh, so they never had a problem um like with anything like that at all uh, and mike's family is also very supportive we haven't had anybody like it hasn't even come up really right like it's, it just hasn't been a thing 
wow, that's really great because your families are your foundation. And if you don't have, if they don't have your backs, then everything becomes more challenging. Yeah, I totally agree. So how do you think that will manifest? I mean, are there specific concerns you have for your child's future? Um, I don't know. Like, I think one of the concerns is that I don't know how it might come up, right? Like, like I said, I grew up in a very, very white town. Like 98% of the population where I grew up was white. I didn't even, I haven't even really witnessed like somebody getting treated poorly based on race. So I, I feel like I'm really ignorant on the topic to be completely honest. And that that's what's scary is like if she or he does have to deal with, you know, somebody being racist towards them, it's not going to be something that I've had to deal with or I'm familiar with. Um, and even even my husband ha- has said that he hasn't had to deal with it very much in his life. And I think it's, I don't know how to say this politically correctly, but he looks white. Uh, like, I don't think people usually assume that he is something else. And like, that's, it's likely that our child will also, you know, look white. But I, I want our child to be proud of being half Mexican and, you know, being Scottish and like everything else. Like, I'm, I'm really fond of uh, genetics and that kind of stuff. So to me, like, I, you know, love learning about uh, different backgrounds and that kind of stuff. Uh, So I do want our child to like, be proud of that fact. Uh, And I hope that they won't have to deal with, you know, any negative behavior. But if they do, we'll cross that bridge. And hopefully together, we can figure out, you know, how to deal with it and support, support our baby. Will you raise your child to be bilingual? We want to. My husband doesn't speak a lot of Spanish. Um, his family does, though. Uh, so I definitely want to talk with his family about, you know, trying to teach our baby some Spanish. And, like, we know we know probably enough. Like, I took three years of Spanish. Uh, so we probably know, like, some very basic Spanish that we can work with as the baby's learning to talk. Uh, and I've even, I want to look into bilingual daycares as well. Because uh, that is something we do really want to do. It's just a matter of like practically how are we going to that we're still sort of figuring out. I think it's amazing that you're even thinking about that because up until five seconds ago, I'd never heard of bilingual daycare. Yes, I, I know that they exist and I know that there are some in the area. So I, I do plan on looking into those. That's really cool. I mean, w- what else can you do? I mean, w- what other opportunities are there to celebrate your child's heritage? Uh, I think j- so Mike's dad was born in Mexico and his mom actually spent a lot of her childhood in Mexico. So a big part of it, I think is just talking to them about their experiences. Uh, and, uh, they, I mean, it's even little things like they eat Mexican food on Christmas, right. And things like that, where it's like the cult, their, their culture is just a little bit different than like, if we have Christmas in my family, like it's different traditions. Uh, and, yeah, that stuff's really cool. And what will be really cool is how you and Mike synthesize those to create new traditions for your family. Yeah, that yeah, that's definitely something that we are really excited to do. Uh, and we, I mean, we sort of it wasn't related to our heritage, but um, for our wedding, we sort of made our own traditions, and that's definitely something that we've done throughout our relationship. It's really special when you can find somebody who values both their culture and their heritage, but also is willing to innovate. I think 
we have gotten to the point with a lot of our traditions where they have become sort of rituals that you just go through the motions, sort of rote, without really thinking about why is it that we do this and what is it supposed to mean? And sometimes you need to recreate those traditions from scratch in order for them to have meaning for you. And the fact that you and Mike are on the same page about that is really special. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons we're together and like, while our, why our relationship is as strong as it is. Will you raise your kid to be a gamer? So we definitely want to, but we also don't want to force our child into anything. <laughs> um, like, they're going to grow up around gaming. That is definitely going to happen because we're not going to change, you know, our lifestyle that extremely. Uh, so we're hoping that they're interested in the things that we do. And that would be amazing. Like, we obviously want that a lot. But if, if they're like, you know, I'm just not into this. I want to play sports. Then we're going to support that. <laughs> like, whatever whatever it is that they want to do. But, you know, when we think about it, like, we obviously think about playing games and magic with our kid. <laughs> but if your kid wants to play sports, they might not know that unless you first introduce them to the possibility. That's true. And, I mean, uh, my my brother is very different from me, and he has two daughters, that, and they do all sorts of things like ballet and t-ball and all those things. And we're definitely going to you know, talk with them about these different things. And when they go to school, if they hear one of their friends doing something, like we're going to be open to anything they want. Uh, and when they get to that age, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk to them about like, oh, are there any kind of lessons you want to take, like music or you know, just all the different things and we can just chat with them. Like that's, that's something we definitely want to do. I have a niece and nephew who are exposed to a variety of great things. And I really applaud their parents for that. My brother and his wife are letting their kids take cello lessons, which is something that never happened in my family. No, none of my siblings or I ever had music, for example. So I think it's cool that my brother is giving his kids those opportunities, but he's not really giving them any geek opportunities. And so every chance I get, I give them, you know, something to do with science or chemistry or comic books. And I've had people say, Ken, why are you trying to force them to be a geek? And my response is, I'm not forcing them to do anything. I'm just letting them know that this option is available because they may, they might not otherwise be exposed to it at all. I think that's great. Like, I try to do the same thing for my nieces. Uh, like, exactly the same. Like, it's it's awesome. Like, I I think kids should be exposed to all the options they have. Right. I just want them to know that it exists. And if they don't yeah. like it, then that's fine. Yep, exactly. I <laughs> Like for my nephew's eighth birthday just a few months ago, I gave him with something that in hindsight could be an odd gift. I gave him two sets of dice from Chessex. And okay, yeah. They make beautiful dice. And I didn't give him a game to go with it, but I think dice are beautiful and they're fun. And when I was his age, I collected dice. And so I just gave him some dice, and it was the first gift he opened, and then he went ahead and opened the rest of all his gifts. And once he had them all open in front of him, he went back to the dice. That's awesome. Well, and dice, like, you can create your own games with dice. Like, dice are great. It's that's the same as, like, a deck of cards, right? Like, there's so much you can do with stuff like that. And that's exactly what he was doing. He started rolling them and just, like, counting up how the numbers added up and the different ways you could arrange them. And, you know, there were no rules. He was just manipulating the numbers in his head, which I thought was great. That is so cool. Cause that's like, <laughs> that's like fun education, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, one thing that my family always says about this kid is he's so smart. And in a way that kind of annoys me because 
they're in a way being smart is something you're born with or certain kinds of intelligence anyway but there are so many more important things to learn as well like i i've never heard anybody in my family say oh he's so compassionate but that's so important to be compassionate too and it's the same with girls because with girls you hear all the time oh she's so beautiful yes and it's like that's that's great like that's a nice thing to say but can we also focus on you know how smart she is or how creative she is or like i totally totally get what you're saying like it's absolutely our society needs to be better at embracing all the ways in which people are individuals and you know what they're good at and passionate about right the first thing i ever hear said about my niece when she shows up to any family event is that's such a pretty dress and i'm like what does that matter? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'll admit, like, it's really hard not to make comments like that. Like, my two-year-old niece is, like, the cutest thing ever. And, like, how do you not tell her she's the cutest thing ever when she's dressed like Minnie Mouse? But at the same time, you have to focus on, you know, other things. And I, I read an article. It was amazing. I wish I could remember where it was. But I read an article that was about when you see your fa- – like, when you see young women in, in your family this holiday season. It was about, like, teenage girls – like, don't ask them about, like, don't comment on, you know, something on their looks. Don't ask them about boys. Like, ask them what book they read recently or what, you know, like something that's, like, more about them as a person and what they're interested in than their outward appearance or something you would, you know, stereotype them as, like, oh, you're a teenage girl, so you must be into boys. Like, like find out what they are into and then have a conversation about that. Yeah, there's actually a great article I'll link to in the show notes. It was published back in July of 2011, and the headline was How to Talk to Little Girls. You know, And it's just this uh, experience that this uh, woman had talking to a her niece, I think, and, or just actually a friend's five-year-old daughter, and it was trying to say things other than, oh, you're so cute, look at that dress, etc. And, you know, and they asked her, you know, hey, what's that book you're reading? You know? Yeah. And the little girl's eyes just lit up because nobody ever asks her about her book. Yeah. So I'm very glad that my nephew is able to and enjoys playing with the numbers on the dice. But there are other qualities as well, which unfortunately I'm not active enough in his life to introduce those elements. But I trust his parents will do that, and I, I hope they do. And, yeah. You know, the, the, all I can do is encourage it the few times I see him by asking him about something other than, uh, so what do you think about the Red Sox versus the Yankees? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's all my family cares about. Anyway, <laughs> wow. Uh, so you have so much change in your life coming up in the year. Are th- what is your greatest hope and or your greatest fear? My greatest hope is simply a healthy baby, to be honest. Like, we just want a healthy baby that, you know, we're going to take care of, as cheesy as that sounds. Uh, and greatest fear, I mean, I think it's, just hoping we're going to be as good of parents as we think we will be Uh, because that it's terrifying like knowing that there's going to be a human that we are 100% responsible for like keeping alive like you know making sure that they are on the right path Um, like that's that's terrifying that there's an actual person that we are creating (laughs) yeah that's a lot of responsibility and a lot of power but it's responsibility that's being given to two of the most passionate, thoughtful, dedicated, and kind people I know. Aw, Ken. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, if anybody was meant to be a parent, it's you two. 
Thank you. I think you're right to be worried. And that's one of the things that makes you a good parent is that you're going into this with your eyes wide open and you're aware of what the challenges will be and you're ready to tackle them. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about how we just have to have an open mind, um, which I think we're really good at. But it's, I think it's about to be more important than it ever has been. And you will rise to the occasion. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Unrelatedly, I have one last question before we go. Great. Final Fantasy VII came out in 1997. Yes. You are not 19 years old. How did you end up with the name Tifa? Uh, so when I moved to Seattle, I didn't really know anybody. Um, one of the first people I met, I actually met him at um, like freshman orientation. Uh, he was like, hey, I think you would be like a really good fit for my friend group. Uh, and he's like, but we are, my name's, my name's actually Jennifer. I went by Jenny until I was 19. Um, he was like, but there's already a Jenny in the group. He was like, how would you feel about having a nickname? And I was like, actually, that would be great. Like, I moved to Seattle from a really small town. Um, I deliberately was sort of starting my own life and, you know, learning my own identity. So I was very on board for the idea of actually having a new name. Um, and he was like, well, I know Final Fantasy is your favorite game and you remind me of Tifa in a lot of ways. He's like, how would you feel about me calling you Tifa when I introduce you to my friends? And I was, I was on board. Um, so for a while, I kind of went by Tifa and Jenny in different aspects of my life, but it was maybe only a couple months uh, when it was Halloween and I was like, I'm going to dress as Tifa and I'm just going, this is going to be my identity. Like I'm going to take on, you know, this new name that represented me. So yeah, that's <laughs> that's the story. Are there people who in your life who still call you Jenny? Uh, only my family. That's it. So if I were to show up in Seattle one day and say, hey, Jenny, you'd be like, that's weird. Yes. <laughs> yep. I will not do that then. <laughs> yeah. While I was at Wizards, it was kind of weird. They wanted to call me Jennifer because they were like, oh, we feel it's more professional. So like for about a year and a half I went by Jennifer at work and that was the only place and when I left I was like I'm not doing that again like I'm gonna be Tifa wherever I am because I just don't relate I don't relate to my old name at all it's like when I'm with my family it feels right but outside of that and even my dad has actually started calling me Tifa uh, but he he also has a nickname like he doesn't go by his name either so he sort of got it <laughs> have you ever considered legally changing your name so I did. Um, when we got married, I, if Mike had taken my last name, I was going to legally change my first name. But because I took his last name, I wanted to keep something for, like for my family, basically. Like I wanted uh, to keep something because of the name they gave me. Because I imagine it must be difficult when you start a new job to fill out all the legal paperwork, but then have your business cards and your email address be something other than your legal name. Luckily, uh, when I went to Microsoft, and I think it's going to be like this in most of the gaming industry, when I went to Microsoft, they were like 100% on board. Like it wasn't even a big deal. I was actually like asked if that was my preferred name because, you know, when I sent my resume over, like it had like it had like Jennifer Tifa on there and they were like, oh, we saw that you wrote this. Like, what do you prefer to be called? And they did it all for me, like my badge, my email address, like everything. It was like not even, it was almost like it was like normal for them to do. Wow, that's really awesome. So I'm hoping that other gaming companies in the area would be as supportive of that. 
two of the jobs I've had in the past five years, I had to jump through hoops to get them to not have my business cards and my email address be Kenneth. Really? Because that is my full legal first name. And every time I hear it, I think somebody's mad at me. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah. But, yeah. Even one of my work email addresses now, t- to this day, is Kenneth underscore Gagney. And I'm like, I have to use that. And even though I sign my emails, Ken, I get replies back from people saying, Kenneth. Yeah. That's what they see. And I'm like, why are you mad at me? <laughs> I didn't do anything. Anyway, well, Tifa, this has been marvelous. Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Yeah, thanks, Ken. This was great. And I hope that we get to see each other in July. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, in the meantime, tell our listeners where to find you or the Lady Planeswalker Society online. Great. So uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Tifa Robles. Uh, and then uh, I have the Lady Planeswalker Society website is ladyplaneswalkers.weebly.com. And I'm sure Ken will link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. And yeah, those are the main places to find me, actually. Other than in Seattle this summer. Right. Excellent. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'm sorry that you're going to be missing PAX East this year, but hopefully we'll cross paths not only this summer, but at some other con. I know uh, Geek Girl Con is an event that you are associated with, and I believe you work alongside a former guest of this show. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. I've been involved with Geek Girl Con since the first year. Uh, we've actually been there, Magic Learn to Play, since year one. Uh, so I'm very tied to that con. And uh yeah, Alyssa Jones and I work together on Xbox. Excellent. Well, maybe we'll all cross paths really soon, then. Awesome. I hope so. Of course, I imagine that your con attendance rate might go down once you have a player three in the house. For this year, it's going down, but we're really hoping that next year we can jump right back into it. And we have the support of my mother, who says she will be a con grandmother that will be taking care of the baby for us. Oh, that's awesome. Free babysitting makes everything easy. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I look forward to seeing you soon, and good luck with all the changes. Thank you so much, Ken. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Okay, so I'm looking at the outline for this show, and I'm really excited that we talked more about Lady Planeswalker Society than I expected. <laughs> um, I think I'd like to eliminate some of the other things we were going to talk about, like uh, your time at working at Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. And possibly your time at Microsoft. That's fine. That's not that exciting, to be honest. <laughs> okay. And I, I think I was kind of throwing those in just in case we ran out of things to talk about. Yeah. Which I should have known, you and me, we wouldn't have that problem. Yeah. <laughs>